Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Deb Flaschenberg, and I'm your host of Yoga Birth Babies. And today we're talking about families, specifically solo parenting, the family positivity movement, alternative families, and what does family mean to you as an individual? What I really enjoyed about this conversation is it stretched me beyond what I see on an everyday basis for family. The family that I live in, I have a husband, I have two kids, and that is the family that I see day in and day out. But that is far from family in general. People form all types of family and choose to have family that they've created. Chose Some choose to solo parent, some choose to have a thruple, some, many options, many options. And I really enjoyed seeing beyond the white picket fence. So to have this conversation, I have Julia Carroll. Julia is building a family. Along the way, she's asking anyone and everyone about how they came to make the decisions they did regarding family life. She's opening up an honest, funny, raw, and earnest conversation, looking at what creating a family really means and how it might show up differently than expected on her podcast, Storked. I had the joy of being on Storked. She's in her fifth season, and she and Julia in this Storked, she explores the concept of modern family alternatives. And every episode features friends and families and neighbors and experts sharing their own journey and defining and creating their own family. So it was a really great conversation. And I think you're going to get a lot out of this. So before we get to my conversation with Julia and her journey of solo parenting and her choices, I just want to tell you what's happening at Prenatal Yoga Center right now. So we are cruising into the late springtime. It is gorgeous right now as I record this. And right now we have classes every single day online for prenatal yoga. And we have six days a week, we have in-studio prenatal yoga. We also have baby and me and postnatal yoga. We've recently added to our on-demand library. We have, I think if I'm correct, about 15 videos on demand. We recently added a childbirth education uh, on-demand workshop. It's amazing. And we have our childbirth education in person, online. We've got our teacher training in person, online. So we're continuing to add to our offerings. Now, the last thing I want to say before we get to my conversation with Julia is just a big thank you. We're almost hitting our next birthday. The studio was conceived in August of 2002, so we're almost at our 21st birthday. And as we round that corner towards that, I just want to say a big 
thank you for the community. It's kind of amazing to think back to when this idea of opening prenatal yoga center popped into my mind that some of our first students are into adulthood. And it's just been a joy and an honor to be part of so many lives. And I thank you, the listener. I thank you, the yoga practitioner. I thank you, the teacher that has become a pre and postnatal teacher training along with us. Thank you for that opportunity. And then the last thing I want to say is this is all for you, the community. If there is a topic or an expert that I haven't covered, please let me know. One of my greatest joys is finding people to then have the opportunity to have a conversation with, to bring topics or point of views onto the podcast. So feel free to let me know if there's a topic or an expert you think I should chat with. You can reach me at deb at prenatalyogacenter.com. All right, that is enough of me. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, please enjoy my conversation with Julia. Hi, Julia. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it is so fun. So community, I just had the joy of being on Julia's podcast, Stort. We are doing a little podcast swap. So I was the speaker and now I'm turning the tables and I'm putting Julia on the spot. So this will be really fun. All right. So I guess we're going to talk solo parenting. So I would love to learn a little bit about you and will you share your journey into solo parenting? Parenting. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Julia Carroll. In my day job, I work in finance of all things. And um, I, I'm 40 years old now. I have an almost two-year-old. And when I was trying to figure out how to build my family life, I really got a little stuck. And I'll explain why um, in a moment. So I, during the pandemic, started calling people and saying, you know, tell me about your life. Tell me about what it's like to date somebody who's divorced with kids and become a stepmom and tell me about your life without kids and what uh, what that feels like and tell me what adoption is like. And I was really trying on those different lifestyles to see which one fit me mm-hmm. and ultimately chose to become a solo parent. And I ended up saying, well, these conversations are so interesting that I decided to also record them and share them in the context of a podcast called Storked, which you have been a guest on. Um, <laughs> So that's like the high level, the the sort of very, very big picture. Um, at a micro level, I just always wanted to be a parent. I always wanted a family. I always imagined that it would be the traditional family where I would have a loving husband um, because I date men and when, you know, gaze adoringly into their cute little faces and bring them home from the hospital together and do all those things. And then I found myself... In my mid-30s, having just gone through a breakup, now I've been through a lot of breakups. Um, unfortunately, these days, dating when you're my generation, if you have not found your person in your 20s, you end up going through a lot of breakups, or at least I did. And this one hit me especially hard. And in hindsight, it was never the right relationship. And I don't blame him at all. In fact, he gave me a big gift by walking away. However... I had this like mental breakdown at the time of the breakup because I just thought, oh my God, there are my chances for having a family. Mm-hmm. I really didn't understand that there was another path. And eventually I started to say, okay, well, there might be other options here. And um, I started to explore those. And I always say the plan B was this like 
this backup plan, this contingency plan, this thing that was in the back of my head is like, well, I can always do that. And as the years progressed and as I we explored it further, the plan B just felt like the right plan A. It felt like the perfect fit for me and my personality and my lifestyle. And that's when I chose to go the solo parenting route. That is amazing. I have to say, I, I, I relate to that. I was married, my first husband, I think I was just turned 30. And then we divorced when I was 34. And I remember being terrified because we all hear like 35, 35, you have to have kids, like, you know, mm-hmm. that your chances of fertility drop. And I was really terrified that it may not happen. So I can relate to that that breakup and then like, and now what? I used to want to be a parent, but how do you do it? So I think it's so brave that you, that you chose that. And also that you realized it was maybe brave isn't the word because it was the right fit. So maybe it's not even, Mm -hmm. it's, I guess, brave acknowledging what worked for you. Yeah. I would really push back on the word brave. Yeah. I think I do need to say that was not the right word. Yeah. Yeah. But I I appreciate you bringing it up because I think so many people say that. They say, oh, I could never do that. Or that's really brave of you. And if you frame it in that context, it sounds like it's a burden, something that is deeply and inherently difficult or wrong or uncomfortable, and you're saddled with it. And I think that's the old narrative of solo parenting in that... um, we used to see solo parents as, as people whose partners had walked away or had passed away and it would never be something you would choose for yourself. And so we have these narratives, these competing narratives from like the leftover from like the fifties of either like, Oh, that poor single mom or the welfare mom. Like she's taking, she's draining resources from the government. And neither of those two things were correct then and are correct now. Right. Yes. So I think there's that thing. I think there's the other thing that happens, which is the glorification of the solo parent. And sometimes we put it on a pedestal. We say, you know, oh, because they must be doing something harder than the rest of us, they must be a superhuman. Mm-hmm. They must be a superhero. They must be a super mom or super dad. And I don't think that's true either. I think um, we're all humans and we're all parenting and we're all constructing our families in whatever way makes sense for us at the time. And then you navigate through that. And so the same way that I'm navigating through solo parenting, you're navigating through doing it in a relationship. I would argue that it's brave to do it in a relationship because now not only are you worried about how you show up as a parent and your relationship with your child, you're also navigating how does your relationship with your significant other evolve and how does their relationship with your child or children evolve? Yeah. And so there's a lot of complexity to that too. And we can't negate... Neither one is better or worse. Neither one is harder or easier. Neither one should be glorified or demonized. But we tend to like to put labels on things. And so brave is a label that is sometimes applied to solo parenting. You know, and I appreciate it because as I was saying it, I'm like, wait a minute, I'm not listening to what she said because you were saying this was what fits you. And so why should I label that as brave? It's more honesty of what was authentic to you, which you just talked about on your podcast about authenticity. So thank you for for really highlighting that I misspoke. I do appreciate that. So, and I would also say, um, one struggle that I think you, how do I say it? When you're a solo panda, one of my friends right now, she is in a relationship, but her husband travels a lot. And we were talking a lot about, she's like, I'm a, 
basically a married person solo raising my kids with resources and occasional sex. And I'm like, and she goes, but, and I'm like, yeah, that sounds actually pretty good. And, and she, actually, that, can I sign up for that? That sounds amazing. And she said, one of the things that she appreciates is that she gets to make all the calls. Like, and I know my husband and I, sometimes we don't always see eye to eye on some of our parenting choices. So she was saying, she's like, I don't have to worry about that. Cause she's like, I'm making all the calls. So I see value in both, in both ways. So I'd, Absolutely. So I'd love to hear what have you found to be the most fulfilling about solo parenting as well as what have you found to be the most challenging? Mm. Well, again, I think the thing that I'm finding most fulfilling most likely I would feel equally fulfilling in a parent in a co-parenting relationship, um, in a coupled relationship. And that is, I'm just really loving being a mom. I'm loving that every day there's a little creature who is a little bit different, but, but sees the world in such a unique and special way that I get to see it through his eyes again. Mm. So, you know, when he wakes up with filled with joy. And he's just so excited to name the colors across the room. Well, it's pretty exciting to be able to identify blue and green and red and orange and to say them. And so, but I don't think about that on a day-to-day basis. I just see colors because I'm an adult. I don't think about that. And so, you know, these little tiny micro moments become so special when you see them through the eyes of a child. And so I think that's that joy is there regardless of whether you're a solo parent or whether you're in a couple or whether you're co-parenting but not living in the same household, like uh, divorced relationships. Um, I, I, there's a lot of magic in the way kids experience the world with just mm-hmm. like, they just show up and they're present in every moment in a different way, especially that we adults have right now with our devices and our um, limitations on time and our expectations and our to-do lists and our goals and metrics and all those things. Um, so I just love that aspect of parenting is watching him see the world. Right now he's just so into art and he's really, really, really excited to ride his tricycle down the street. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes he topples when he's running down the street or on the bike or whatever. And it's just, it's just joyful. Um, the hard part, I think, is the stuff that I think you could imagine. It's that nine times out of 10, I don't want to take a break from my kid. I don't want to um, be relieved of him, in so, so to speak. You know, it's not like I need time away from him. But every once in a while, there's that moment where you think, oh, you know, I'm really tired. If I could just have a nap and be sure that my partner could get him when he wakes up from his nap or... You know, I'd really love to go to a Saturday morning yoga class, but I don't want to pay the extra money to hire a babysitter for that hour or two hours or whatever it is. So um, I think some of the things, which is the the time commitment is awesome. I love spending all my like minutes with him that I'm not working. And every once in a while, I could use, you know, a break that you're not paying for. And I think the other thing is that you're... um how do I say this? Your choices are not constrained necessarily, but things like if I lose my job or if I choose to take a sabbatical or want to go in a different direction with my career, I don't necessarily have the benefit of having a second income Mm -hmm. to allow for that. Not a lot of coupled relationships have that either, by the way. But the financial burden these days when childcare costs, I read something today that childcare costs in the U.S. since the 1990s 
have grown exponentially mm-hmm. faster than the inflation rate of the nation generally. So it's just harder and harder every year to raise kids financially. And sometimes the burden of that and thinking about handling it on your own is really stressful. Yeah. I was looking into colleges and what I remember, so I'm a little older than you in my late forties, but I remember going to college in the early nineties to what it is now. I was floored. I'm like, and how do people afford that? So yeah, the financial burden. I did a podcast about trying to plan your finances with kids and gosh, I don't remember if this number is totally accurate. In fact, you'd probably know this better. You're in the financial world, but not even through college. It was well, almost close to like $200,000 per child from like birth just through high school. I was thinking that is insane. It's insane. It's, It's absolutely, absolutely bananas. And within the context of paying for education, I'll give you this little anecdote. I recently had to choose a preschool for my soon to be two year old, um, going into the fall semester. And we were very blessed. I live in Boston. There's a lot of educational resources here and we just had some great options available to us. And I had this like decision fatigue, mental, almost like it wasn't like a breakdown, but I just got stuck. I was perseverating. I like couldn't move past the decision. Everyone in my life was sick of hearing about it. And it was just because I had so many great options and I was panicked to make the wrong choice Mm -hmm. on behalf of a two-year-old. My theory being at the time he was one and a half, six months later, that would be a fourth of his life. He's going to be a different child. How the hell am I supposed to know what kind of preschool to send him to? And it was one of those things where I thought, this is one of those moments where having a partner where you could turn to and say, you're a co-parent here, your decision matters, I can't decide help would be really nice. And Mm -hmm. it's, so the decisions big and small, that's a small one, but, or, you know, what kind of values we want to instill, what kind of lifestyle we want to create for our child, what kind of, um, what kind of person do we want to help him grow up to be? Sometimes it's nice to have a partner to think through those things with. Yeah. Decision fatigue, I can completely understand that because you are making all the decisions. That's a lot on you. Let's Mm -hmm. dive into alternative family structures since the idea of two parents is not nearly as common as it once was. What are your ideas about how to build your ideal family using your personal values as a guide? I think it's exactly that. I mean, it's we go back to glorifying single parenting for a second or solo parenting is that um, it's really acceptable for somebody to say, I don't want to do this alone. I want to be in a relationship with somebody. I want to see my partnership evolve even as we're raising kids together. And so I think the first step is to acknowledge where we're conditioned to believe that something is right or wrong. Where are we conditioned to think that a family has to look like this or like that? A lot of it comes from media. A lot of it comes from books. A lot of it comes from, you know, the examples that we have in the world around us. And if we can first acknowledge what we're conditioned to see as quote unquote normal or acceptable, Mm -hmm. then we can choose what of that conditioning do we want? For instance, I've only ever seen examples of married couples raising kids. Um, is that something I choose for myself or is that something that's being chosen for me? Mm -hmm. And it's acceptable to say, I see it and I, I choose it. Um, 
uh, having multiple kids, for instance, uh, having any kids, for instance, that may be something that we are conditioned to think is normal. And then you have to question that. Do I want kids? Uh, what are my value systems around how I want to show up in my life and how I want to spend my disposable income and how I want to spend my disposable time? Not even, nobody has disposable time, but my extra time. <laughs> right. Um, and, and if you can say, I think I have to have kids because that's what's been delivered to me as a message and it's a message I'm choosing to reject or it's a message I'm choosing to embrace because I desperately want to be a parent. Those are all totally appropriate choices. And I think it comes from divorcing what is expectation from what is truly a core value or a core desire. Mm. And it takes a lot of internal work, I think, to get to that, to make the decision that, you know, this is who I want to be. This is what I want for my life. And it's that existential crisis question of who do I want to be when I grow up? Except when you're talking about maybe adding kids to your life, however they come into your life, you're talking about a permanency. So it is one of those decisions that you can't take lightly. And you, we all, we all are sort of figuring it out as we go. Yeah, sense. I, it totally does. And I actually really appreciate you putting the emphasis on the pause of, do I really want to have kids? I was talking, and, and that's so conditioned into us as a society. I was talking to my friend Jen about this, that when we had kids, our kids are about 10 months apart. She's been my best friend since like the third grade. And we've been talking about when they were really young, maybe like like what your child is around that two-year-old age, which I found to be a very challenging. In fact, I find all the ages a little challenging. Um, but we were saying like, oh my gosh, wait, why did we do this? Were we just, we were just put into this by society to think, okay, you get married, you do this, you do this, you do this. And we had that whole like existential conversation of, wait a minute, who's telling us that we have to do this? Granted, we were already there, you know, in that position, mm-hmm. yeah. but I do appreciate you highlighting not feeling like you have to follow a prescribed idea of this is what society tells us we have to do and looking at alternative ways and alternative family structures. Where I live in um, South Orange, Maplewood area, New Jersey, we have a really amazing diverse community where my kids are totally used to seeing two dads or two moms. They think nothing of it. But when I was growing up in the 70s, 80s, that was not as common. So I like that we're starting to accept alternative alternative family structures so we can change that narrative. Oh, I think it is so important. And you know, the problem with accepting the narrative as it is and just taking what's delivered to us um, culturally and saying this is normal is two things. One is if your life departs from normal in any way, you feel a sense of shame. Mm-hmm. You know, something's wrong with me. You know, I don't want kids. Something's wrong with me. Or my marriage isn't working and I have to walk away from it as you did, Deb. Something's wrong with me. Um, or I can't find the right partner that I want to co-parent with. And so something's wrong with me. And I definitely internalize that shame. You know, something's wrong with me that this person has chosen to walk out of my life. And now I don't know if I'm going to get to have kids. Like, am I deeply unlovable? Is there something just so, why is everyone else able to find partners and I can't? You know, it, it's very hard not to internalize that. And when instead you can say, hey, wait a minute, I'm making trade-offs. Mm-hmm. I could have a family with a partner if I chose to settle with somebody that I didn't either love or think was going to be a good co-parent. But instead, I can choose to do it on my own. I could, you know, I could choose to stay in a marriage that I'm unhappy in, or I could choose to show to my kids what choosing yourself looks like. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
what finding joy looks like. I could, you know, so the next thing you do when you, when you divorce the prescription from what's going on in your life is then you can start looking at your trade-offs. Now, again, I want to identify that some of these choices are not ours to make. Sometimes mm-hmm. people walk out of your life and you don't get to choose divorce right? Um, or you don't get to choose whether or not you get to have kids or not because fertility may make you childless. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're not choosing to be child-free by choice. It, it's something that you then have to tackle or experience or navigate afterwards. So I don't want to take that away, but in the context of setting out intentionally to make a family either in a traditional way or in an alternative way. It's about trade-offs and choice. I totally agree. All right, we're going to take a, uh, take a quick break. When we come back, I want to turn to some of the stories that you've heard through Storked and talk about any trends or themes that you have heard or seen. Okay, we'll be right back. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable, with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. All right, we are back. So let's talk about from, I think we were in season five of Storked. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. All right. So you've heard many, many stories. So let's talk about what you've learned about alternative families. And are you seeing any themes or trends or having a story that you want to share? Yeah, the first, the first is the one I just mentioned, which is that some of us feel a sense of shame when our family lives don't look the way we think they are supposed to. And part of that is because there's not enough examples of alternative families in media, on podcasts, in books, etc. And so that's one of the things I'm aiming to dispel in Storked is by showcasing all these gorgeous families and the way they came to be, hopefully will make the listeners feel less alone in whatever their choice is or whatever their circumstances are. So um, that's definitely a theme I want to call out. Now, not everyone feels shame. A lot of people feel joy and abundance and enthusiasm for the way in which they get to create our families. And I think there's something really special happening, which is that we're sitting in the moment where social norms are evolving. Like you said, in the 90s, gay families were really rare. Mm -hmm. And many of the gay couples that I've spoken to said, I didn't think I was allowed to have a family because I liked men or because I liked women. I didn't think that was available to me. So our laws are changing. Our social norms are changing. Our um, embracing alternative families is changing. You said you've got a number of people who don't have the traditional male, female, Mm 2.5 kid family structure in your town. That's incredible. The second thing that's changing is access to fertility treatments. Mm -hmm. And that's huge. I mean, as science evolves, more and more of us can access 
having kids if we choose to have kids. Um, and, and that's really tremendous. So we're getting a lot of stories about fertility journeys, um, in Stork. A lot of them are dependent on, um, IVF or IUI, a lot of sperm donation, whether you're in a heterosexual or a gay couple or your solo parent. Um, so those themes of, we get to have this because we're at this very special moment in time when laws are changing, when expectations are changing, and when science is changing is huge. Yeah, no, I definitely want to dip more into the science in a little bit. Yeah. But I wanted to ask you, so we started talking a little bit about alternative families. What about yeah. the family positive movement and kind of tearing down that yeah. white picket fence? Yeah. Like, let's get rid of that. It's like breaking the glass ceiling. So can you talk more about the family positive movement as well as what does family mean to you? Because I know that's something you focus a lot on, on your podcast. So I'd love to hear your take on all that. Yeah. And one of the things I love about podcasting is I get to ask the difficult questions and I, it's harder to be on the other side and to answer the difficult questions. <laughs> so, you know, I've asked hundreds of people, what does family mean to you? And I, I, um, appreciate you turning the tables on me for, for that one. I mean, I think I, family is this gorgeous celebration of all the things and all the people in your life that create meaning for you and make mm. you feel safe and loved and expansive and whole. Um, and those can be people that you are biologically related to, not biologically related to, people that you choose, people that come into your life unexpectedly. Um, I have a number of friends I consider family. I'm very blessed to have a nuclear family that I was raised in that were very close. Um, and the family that I chose to create, which is my, my son through sperm donation. Now, um, your first part of the question about uh, the family positivity movement and celebrating all family structures, the way I like to think about it is when I was growing up in the 90s, everyone had to look like Kate Moss. Those were the images we saw in the magazines and on television. And that was the messaging I received when I walked through, you know, certain stores that were targeting teenagers is that you had to look a certain way or you were not considered beautiful. And there's been this conscious effort to say all bodies are beautiful and we're mm -hmm. going to make clothing for all bodies and we're going to showcase all bodies, all physical bodies in advertisements. And we're going to speak to all um, skin tones and sizes and be inclusive in that way. And I love that as an analog for our family movement. So we call it the family positivity movement. And it is that where we used to have the Kate Moss of families, which was the nuclear family. And now we have so many examples of beautiful families. We have people who are in couples and throuples and polyamorous relationships. We have people who are doing it alone. We have people who are choosing not to have kids. We have adoption. We have integrated families and blended families and, you know, the quote unquote Brady Bunch style, every, every different permutation of family exists these days and should be celebrated and showcased and made visible. And so that's the movement that Storked is really trying to engender. I love that. And I also really appreciate the way that you brought in like the Kate Moss and then and very few people could have reached that. And, and then many people felt badly if they couldn't. And so the same thing with 
not everyone's going to have the quote unquote, what we call the white picket fence, the two point Mm -hmm. bond out. So, and taking that away and accepting there are so many variations and they're all valid and should be celebrated. So, wow, I really, really like that. So let's, let's dive into, if you don't mind, into the whole be how your journey into solo parenting and, I can't even imagine choosing a sperm donor. It feels like a huge <laughs> undertaking. I'm kind of envisioning. <laughs> it's gonna, you might totally laugh at this. So when I was younger, my mom said, you can redesign your room. And she came home with like, do you remember? This is I'm really dating myself. Wallpaper samples. And they were like books and books of wallpaper samples. They were huge. And I remember flipping through each one, marking it down. So I'm kind of envisioning like a catalog of sperm donors. So... <laughs> Maybe that's a bad, bad analogy there. No, it's 100% (laughs) accurate. I think the wallpaper analogy is really apt. And, you know, I think there was one or two TV shows which showed somebody going into a fertility clinic and getting a book of potential donors. And that used to be the case. Now it's digitized. So instead of it being like a book of wallpaper, it's really like more similar to online dating. You're on like a match.com or a Bumble profile or whatever, and you're swiping through these potential donors. And so the first thing I always say is you have to get that dating mentality out of your head because you're not dating these men, Mm -hmm. right? They're not going to be your partner. You're not selecting for the things that are important for your heart. Um, You're selecting for their genetics and who they're going to create. And one of the really icky and wonderful things about sperm donation is that it's part of an industry. We have an industry out there that creates humans. So that can be uncomfortable when you think I am purchasing somebody's DNA to make a child. Um, so the two pieces that are really uncomfortable is like the, the way in which it kind of feels like online dating and it kind of feels like shopping. You know, <laughs> it's like those two things are just a little icky and they're also glorious. They're also really amazing. So what you get is you get these profiles, you get their genetic history, their, me- their medical history to the extent that they know their medical history. Um, you get things like an audio recording of a conversation so you can hear their voice. You oh. get written. Um, yeah, that piece is really nice. Um, you get some essays, you get their grades. Um, I mean, you really get everything and then you get baby pictures. And so, um, I'm not you known. Get, and you see them their yeah. age now, or you only see their baby pictures? In, with the sperm bank that I chose to go with, which is one of the larger ones, highly recommended by doctors, et cetera, um, very few of the donors chose to give the picture of how old they were okay. at, at the time. And what's a little bit interesting is that these donors are not the age of the men that I'm dating, right? So I was in my late 30s at the time I was choosing a donor, and the donors are in their late teens and early 20s. Oh. Yeah. So it's in, it's a little uncomfortable. You're seeing like an 18-year-old or a 19-year-old or a 21-year-old, and they look so young, you know? Yeah. Um, but and healthy sperm. Them, and healthy, healthy sperm. That's one of the reasons we do that age is the, the sperm is really healthy. So... Um, so yeah, so it, it's interesting when you do see the quote-unquote adult pictures, Um that they're not very adult, actually, and very few of them choose to give adult pictures. More, you're seeing baby pictures, and you're looking at these cute, cherubic, like, faces with the chubby cheeks and the <laughs> gorgeous little eyelashes and the pouty lips or whatever, and you're thinking, could this baby be my baby? 
you know? And of course they're not. This child has already grown up, but you start thinking like, would my baby look like this? Would my mm. baby have ears that look like that or a little nose like that or cheeks like that? Um, so it's a very weird process for sure. It's also one where there's no wrong answer. And I think that's where you're getting a little bit of that wallpaper moment where there's so many different ways to choose a sperm donor. Some of the themes that I've heard or examples that I've heard are, if you're partnered, I wanted the donor to look like my partner. If you're not partnered, I wanted the, the donor to look like me because I want them to, the child to fit into the way in which our family looks, you know, the extended family. Um, I've heard people who go the opposite direction. I'm fair skinned. I burn really easily. I'm prone to skin cancer. So I'm going to choose somebody who has a darker complexion so that my kid doesn't have that same risk or I'm short and I really want somebody tall or you name it. Mm -hmm. I've heard of people using, um, blood type so that if there's ever Mm -hmm. a crisis or an emergency, they share the same blood type as you. Um, I chose to screen for, and now these things are not good metrics. They're soft metrics, but I chose to screen for my perception of intelligence and my perception of kindness, which was really hard. Um, and then things like, do they have a big smile, you know, because you have to go with something, you know? Um, can I ask a question and can I dig in? So I get in a sense how you can figure out intelligence, maybe look at where they went to school or grades. What was your way of judging kindness? Was it the letters they wrote or was it how they spoke? How did you, what kind of took your antenna up of like, that's a kind person? Yeah, that was a really hard thing to screen for. And of course it's subjective. So um, for a lot of the donors, they had little descriptions of the staff at the cryobank and what their perception was. And so sometimes the staff doesn't have a lot to say. They'll say, this guy wears red shirts a lot. You think, well, that does not help me <laughs> at all, right? He likes red. You know, he's got cool, <laughs> he likes red. He's got great style. He's got great hair. Like, okay, that that's their taste in clothing really isn't helpful. But every once in a while you get somebody who says whenever he's in, he's respectful and kind to the staff, or he's Hmm. always got a big smile on his face, or he lights up the room. And so I really tried to look for the external descriptors from the people who had met him. And then I was listening to their, his voice, you know, does this sound like a kind person? I was trying to read into the essay. Does it sound altruistic? Now keep in mind, it's a business. They're getting paid for this. So it's not going to be entirely altruistic, but do they sound like they are doing it for the right reasons? Um, as a metric of intelligence, I was looking at grades. And then one of the things that I really liked about my donor is that his parents were professors and he was doing um, an advanced degree in a hard science. So I sort of mm. felt like, okay, that's not a mistake. That feels like it's maybe generational yeah. or intentional. Exactly. Um, but the other thing is kindness is because it's so subjective. I ended up having a couple of friends and I call them like my board of advisors <laughs> who went in and looked at my top profiles and helped me see what I might be missing. Mm. So there's one guy I thought was amazing. And one of my friends said, well, I'm seeing a lot of ego in his profile. Are you seeing Mm. this? You know, or somebody else said, oh, I think you missed this medical history and that concerns me. Um, Or or whatever. And everyone universally picked this one donor and said, you know, I think he's my top two. And so that was like reaffirming or confirming that, that I'd picked the right one. But unlike my preschool decision where I agonized and obsessed and panicked over it, When I picked the donor, 
it was like, oh yeah, this is the guy. Like it was just, it was that aha, of course, settling feeling in my body. Like this is, this is right. You know, when you look at your son, do you feel like you see, or some of you and some of the donor, like, what do you see back? Oh, absolutely. Well, the interesting thing is my donor is brunette. Um, and my son is as blonde as they come. So I don't know if his hair is going to change or if he ended up getting that from my side. I don't know enough about genetics to know which are recessive and which are dominant. But I see it in little things like they say that toes are related to uh, the male DNA. So I, I do see that his feet look a little different than mine. And I see that he has a nose that could be like mine or it could be like the donor's. Um I definitely think his eyes are the donors, you know, so you start to see these little features that you think, oh yeah, I can see that this came from somebody else. Um, I find genetics so fascinating that way. Like my, it's funny, my father-in-law has this little sideways smile that my husband and my son have like every now and then it's just like a little twinkle of like, Oh my God, that's my father-in-law's face on my husband and my son. I don't see it often, but every now and then, and it's, it's just like a, it's not even a, like the shape of their eyes. It's just the, the way their, their smile appears. I find genetics just Mm -hmm. fascinating that way. Totally. And, and it really does, we in high school we were introduced to the concept of nature versus nurture, and I think um, it was a fun debate intellectually to say, "Oh, there's these things called genetics, and you know how much do they inform who we are as people?" And it's a totally different thing when you don't know fifty percent of your child's mm. DNA to say, "Am I creating this? Like, is his joy?" And his big smile, does that come from the way in which he's being raised? Does it come from the fact that he's two and there's no care in the world or, <laughs> or he's almost two? Or does it come from this donor? Like, is that a personality trait that is genetically linked? I have no clue. Um, and I don't think many people know some of, some of the genetics questions are really still up in the air. I will say this about genetics, and I think this is really important for anyone who's thinking about sperm donation. It's, it's an industry and it's an industry that has its flaws. So right now, um, you are resting on the disclosures a young person makes about mm. their family history, right? Mm. And there are things that may come up later in their life that they don't disclose because they haven't happened yet. Or there may be things in their family history that they don't fully are not fully aware of or they don't fully appreciate or understand. Mm. So you don't have a complete medical history. And I've heard the argument that very rarely does anyone have a complete medical history. I mean, you may have gaps in your medical history based on how familiar you are or connected you are to your existing family. Um, not everyone is privileged enough to know all the members of their family. But mm-hmm. in this case, it can be really dangerous because things come up later, like schizophrenia or certain mental health issues, like certain autoimmune diseases, certain things that are genetically linked. And you could be choosing a sperm donor not knowing that the your future baby could carry those things and you might never know. So you hear horror stories of somebody getting very sick and not knowing why am I getting sick and not knowing that they're genetically predisposed to some disease that had they known it, their doctors could treat differently. And it's very scary as a parent to say, okay, there might be some medical crisis in my kid's future that I will never fully be able to grab my, wrap my head around or wrap my arms around because I don't know 50% of his DNA. 
Is that the kind of thing you could do genetic testing for? I think as genetic testing evolves, and again, I'm not an expert, yes, and um, there are certain things that, that, for instance, schizophrenia. There's There's been a lot of studies, not studies, there's been a lot of examples in the news of donors who have that disease and they donate to the sperm bank and they don't disclose that they have that disease. Maybe mm. because it's one of those diseases that you refuse to acknowledge that you have, or maybe um, it's because it's, it's just the way it manifests itself. Or it's something that comes up later and then you don't later disclose to the sperm bank, oh, guess what? I'm having a mental health crisis. I should tell the people that I donated. Right. Um, so that's one of those things that if you, if the, if you're raised with a parent who has a disease like that and you know the markers to look for, I think your educators and your medical doctors can provide support around it. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm venturing into very awkward ter- territory. There's a lot of news studies on this. We've done a couple of episodes on Storked. Um, that this genetic history, this medical history thing is a very complicated element of the donation industry. Right. Um, and the second piece it's tied to anonymity. And um, so there's some com- complexities around an industry that allows for anonymity when it comes to genetics. It sounds um, complicated, but also, like you said, it could be complicated if people don't know their own background. Like I don't really know a ton of like my mother's brother's side, you know, so there's a lot that could happen even within uh, a chosen family <laughs> like that way. So I appreciate you bringing that up and yeah, I don't think I have anything else to add. I just appreciate you bringing that up. Is there yeah. anything else you want to share about either your journey or solo parenting or anything we've talked about as we start to wrap up? Um, I'll only share this, which is that I spent so much of my life trying to think about how do I get to create the family I want? And much of the Storked podcast is focused on that. And many of our episodes are focused on that. You know, how did your family come to be? How did we go through a fertility journey? Or how did you come to the conclusion to go solo parent or whatever it is? And we tend then to think about that once the baby is in your arms, if you're choosing to have kids, whether they're adopted or through donation or through traditional marriage or whatever, that that's, that's it. You've created your family. And I think there's a parenting piece that we often overlook. So for instance, for families who choose to adopt, there's something called adoption trauma that can be very complicated and you have to parent through that. Um, or there's complicated and important relationships to the first families. When you're talking about donor children, parenting through their donor conception story, making sure that they're aware of that story and you're aware of the implications of anonymous donation um, and a lack of insight into medical history. I mean, those are things that inform parenting. So mm-hmm. I think I thought initially that it was all about how you create your family. And now I'm coming to understand that how you create your family also informs how you parent your family. Mm-hmm. And so my responsibility as a solo parent who's used a donor is to understand the ups and downs and challenges of being donor conceived so that I can parent myself through that. Mm. Thank you. We're going to take one more break. When we come back, what is one final tip or piece of advice you would like to offer new and expectant parents? We will be right back. So you can choose from your own experience or from having heard many stories. What is one final tip or piece of advice you'd like to offer new and expectant parents? 
Yeah, I think um, parenting is one of the most beautiful things you can do if you choose to do it, if it's something that you want. But one of the things I've heard from a lot of the Storic families is that sometimes when it is a more complicated journey to get your family, you know, it doesn't happen naturally or easily with meeting your partner or uh, the fertility process isn't, we try for three months and boom, it worked. Um, or there's a long adoption journey. Sometimes you think that you're not allowed to feel the hard moments mm-hmm. of parenting, right? So like I worked so hard to have my son and I went through all this deep introspection to decide that solo parenting was the right path. And then I spent a ton of money to buy sperm and to go through a fertility journey, et cetera. And so once he's in my arms, if I'm having a rough moment and I'm saying, oh gosh, parenting's really hard in this moment. And I could use like a five minute break or, you know, a nap or whatever it is, there's a guilt that comes with it. But I worked mm-hmm. so hard for this. I have to love every minute. And then you get that, that narrative, you know, that you run into somebody in the grocery store and they say like, enjoy every minute. It's precious. And it is precious. And it's okay for you to have a moment where you're not enjoying that particular moment, yeah. even if you worked for years to get that family. And I, I just offer that permission, um, because it's something I, it took me a little bit to figure out that I was allowed to have. I love that. That is something my husband and I talk about a lot, to be completely honest, that while we appreciate being parents, we don't have to love every moment. In fact, there's many moments that we don't love. So I appreciate you reminding everybody about that. And I've had students say the same thing. They've spent years in IVF and they're like, I feel like I should, I owe it to this baby and to my partner and to myself. We spent so much money, but they don't love it. So thank you for kind of ripping that bandaid off of like, oh, I should do this. Where can people find your work? Yeah. Um, thank you for asking that. Um, so the podcast Storked, it's S-T-O-R-K apostrophe D. Um, that can be found wherever you listen to podcasts. And definitely if you listen to an episode and you like it, give a good review. Um, we have a website, storkedpodcast.com and, uh, there you can see all prior episodes. You can sign up for the newsletter. There's a lot of great resources and even some discount codes to some corporate partners. Yeah. And then, um, in terms of social media or on, um, TikTok, just starting TikTok. I don't really know how to use it. Um, Instagram, (laughs) uh, Facebook. So yeah, very easily findable, especially if you use that apostrophe. Amazing. All right. Of course, we'll have all that in the show notes and your uh, TikTok handle. I have to say we're just ourselves getting into it. Well, personally, I have someone so else hard. doing it because <laughs> like, I'm too old. Someone else has to do this for me. Someone else on my team, but we'll have all that in our show notes. But Julie, I have so enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for doing the podcast swap. It has really been such a pleasure. Oh, I've loved getting to know you. Thank you for your time. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening.